0: Well, I am so glad that you are here for this podcast. Here's somebody that I have seen online for a while and just met him five minutes ago. So I am really glad to welcome to the podcast, Shane Bishop, Reverend Shane Bishop, who serves a church in Southern Illinois, a greater St. Louis area. Shane, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Andy. Would you say I'm the very best friend you have that you've known five minutes or less currently? Oh, wow. I've never been asked that question. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right now.
0: That's it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say yes. I'm afraid to say no. I, love I don't it. know what will happen. Like, oh man, is that a trick question? I don't know. I'm just going to stick with yes. Oh, so, good. Good. You, and what I've seen of you online and what you're doing. That sort of, Shane, some of my audience might know you. A lot of our folks are kind of like in the Pan Wesleyan world altogether. But I'd love for you just to tell us a little about yourself and how you got where you are, where you're serving. And then what, I'm particularly interested eventually to ask you some questions about the way that your church has left the United Methodist Church. But We'll get to that in a little bit. But let's just hear a little bit about you and how you got to Southern Illinois.
1: Yeah, my dad... His name's Fred Bishop. He heads up a group called No Greater Love Ministries. Okay. They we're doing men's ministry back before men's ministry was cool, okay. and uh, they did a lot of street do a lot of street ministry. So it started in 1976. So I'm kind of reared in this uh, street evangelism culture, uh, more along the lines of equipping men to share the gospel, uh, challenging men to get outside their comfort zone, seeing real growth in the hearts of men, street ministry being a tool that get, gets everybody out of their comfort zone. Yeah. So Raised in that, uh, got out of college, taught uh, athletes all the way through, taught uh, history and coached baseball and basketball. Okay. And then got a call, from my university asking me if I'd be interested in, in coming back for a full ride on a master's degree, if I would be willing to be a TA, and then also got a, a simultaneous call from a Methodist church wanting to know if uh, I would be interested in being a part of their staff to run their family life ministries, so this all kind of uh, is a yeah. bit of a confluence around 1986, and kind of starts me off on a journey toward vocational ministry.
0: Interesting. So what, what, what school is that at where you were, you're serving in that role? Southern
1: Southern Illinois university at Carbondale. Okay. And now are those the Salukis? Those are the Salukis after Egyptian dogs. And who is it named after an Egyptian dog? There
0: you go. It's a tough one to say, I guess there's a lot of barking or something like that at your your, dog
1: pound kind of thing. Yes. Yes. That's what
0: it is. Okay
1: yeah, but I, I got my undergrad there, also uh, went to uh, grad school there. Uh, graduated uh, from grad school in history ed. and my plan was to be a baseball coach at the Juco level, okay. Yeah, I'd I love the Juco. It was a great opportunity for me coming out of a small town and to teach history at the juco sure. level. and uh, and Right about the time I was ready to get that going, felt a very clear and definite call to go to seminary. I uh, called my wife while I was on a mission trip, told her I feel called to go to seminary, and uh, she said, okay, when do we leave? And so that kind of began a very different journey for me.
0: Gotcha. And so then you served in the um, conference, is it Southern Illinois Conference? What's the name of the conference where... After you after seminary, I guess you went back to that conference, I presume?
1: Yeah, I went to seminary at, at Emory University in Atlanta, cambridge yeah. School of Theology. Served three years in a, a small church there, two small churches in Manchester, Georgia. Okay. graduation, you still had the Southern Illinois Conference. It had not yet merged with Central Illinois. And uh, I, I took an appointment there in a town called Sumner. Also had a country church called Beulah. But two really big churches. Sumner ran about 200 at the time. Beulah ran about 100, and so uh, hit the ground out of seminary doing ministry in a uh, corn country.
0: Okay, interesting. So then, uh, at some point, you how long before you got to the church you're serving now? Is it comes? Is it Fairview Heights? Is that the name of the church?
1: Yeah, Fairview Heights. I was at Sumner for five years. Okay. Beulah. Things went really, really well. Uh, when you were in a tiny little town. And God really blessed the churches; they they really grew, and things were going great. Got a call one day from the powers that be in Methodism, said we have just relocated a church in the suburbs. It's been there for about a year. The current pastor is going to become a district superintendent, and we feel like you're the guy to take it to the next level. And uh, in July of 1996, off I went for Fairview Heights.
0: OK, seven.
1: Off I went for Fairview Heights.
0: And you've been there since.
1: I've been there ever since. I'm in mean, year 26 now. Wow. It looks like, it looks awesome. like it's going to work out. <laughs> well, that sounds interesting. Now, I love how you all throughout
0: your story and then you've talked about the the first church. Sumter, is that it? Sumner. Sumner, Sumner, okay. nervous, yes. Sumner, how that church grew. And I, I don't think you're just talking about numbers in, in the sense of like, okay, we are successful, but uh, you have a new book that's coming out called That's Good News, How to uh, Overcome Your Fear and Evangelize. And um, I think the key to what you've done, what you've been able to lead and empower people to do by the power of the Holy Spirit Is embrace evangelism, right? Is that the the key task that I feel like is when you talk about growth? Is that how growth happened, or did some other churches close and just come to this one?
1: Yeah. When uh, Lynn Wilson from Invite Resources uh, first contacted me about writing the the book on evangelism, yeah. I think he said, he said, I I just feel like you're the guy to do this for us. And I, I came out of a street evangelism background. And so sharing the good news, believing the gospel is good news. Yeah. And being able and equipped to share it has always been something I've brought to my churches. So, you know, I always say, uh, Evangelism 101, you invite someone to church, I'll tell them about Jesus once they get here. Evangelism okay. 201, I want to equip you to tell people about Jesus yourself. And so I've just always had this strong evangelistic impulse And when people start inviting folks to church, uh, if you're proclaiming the gospel, once they get there, people are going to start getting saved and they're going to start becoming disciples and they're going to get involved and your churches are going to be transformed. Pretty simple. Yeah.
0: Now you talk about uh, a kind of a course, so to speak. I like how you lay this out. Evangelism 099. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, we always talk about it. I talked about it in the book. We talk a lot about just what stages of evangelism. So evangelism 099, you know, just hopping in that uh, sharing on Facebook that you went to church today, Okay, just, just marking yourself present or, or passing along something, sharing something, just some way that sort of identifies you as a Christian, at least lets the people in your world know you attend church, not very threatening. You, you do it when you go to restaurants or movies, just kind of deal that into the mix, let people know. And that becomes something that establishes you, maybe is a little different than everybody else that they know, and might establish you to move into what we call 101, just kind of move okay. to that next level of evangelism.
0: Now, here's the thing. I, I come from a tradition that has an a, a evangelist core, the Salvation Army. And <laughs> one of the things that happens is the 099 version, 099, however you said it, is the um, there's a very public display through a uniform, a Salvation Army uniform. And so yeah. that. And so sometimes you think like walking into a restaurant or walking around town, that is kind of that 099 work, like that, that's great. But unfortunately, sometimes it can stay there, right? Absolutely. But we need to move from 099 to 101, right? What's that move to 101?
1: Well, let's just kind of take your old 99 and make it the new 101. Uh, we have a lot of Christchurch gear, So we at Christchurch, we're a large, large congregation. So we've got an insignia and all that that's pretty well known in our region. We just encourage people to wear the gear. So we're going to get pretty high end gear, the kind of stuff people would actually wear normally. And the idea is if someone asks you about your shirt, if they ask you about Christchurch, we just simply give them a little business card that uh, is something that they can respond. So if they ask about Christchurch, what is Christchurch, where is Christchurch? Boom, they can pull out a card, offer people an invitation to church. i, I got a funny story about that, Andy. Go for this it. It should be four, five, six years ago. I- I'm in Sam's Wholesale Club on a Friday to eat lunch because my friend, I have three bucks to get a pizza uh-huh. special at Sam's. I've got a Christchurch sweatshirt on. It's about this time of year. It just says Christchurch, got a hood on it. I walk in. The young lady waiting on me. She goes, "Christ Church is that the one on Frank Scott Parkway?" I say, "Yep." She said, "Do you go to church there?" I said, "Yep." <laughs> she said, "I've been thinking about attending. Do you think I'd like it?" I said, "I do." And I hand her a card. Yeah, sure. Next week after church, she runs up to me and says, "Why didn't you tell me you were the pastor?" And I said, "Because I didn't think it should matter. Right? Uh, it just shouldn't matter. It should be something that all Christians do." So that's it. Kind of that thing, you know. Somebody asked, I don't, I didn't approach her. I just had a shirt on and yeah. she asked, but to quote uh, a little old King James, I had an answer for the hope that was in me. I had there a little bit go. of a plan and a way to follow that up.
0: Awesome. So then the move to 201. So when people evangelize themselves, so you, you want to like get people to, to the church. I love that. Like, let's just think about what that is. And I want to get back to your very last chapter about that in a second, but what do you, what's involved with 201 for
1: you? Oh, let's just make a direct invitation to church. You know, yeah. let's let's just make that direct invitation. And one of the best ways to do it, you know, you can buy billboards and that's great for the billboard companies. <laughs> and uh, you can put a million slicks in the newspaper and that's great for the, the slicks companies. But people come to church because somebody they know or respect invited them. You bring people to church on your arm. You you say, hey, would you like to come to church with us? We'll save you a seat. We go to this service. Would you like to grab lunch afterwards? So we want to equip people to make those invitations. Would you join us? Would you join me in worship? That's that next step. And it goes from uh, playing defense where you have an answer if someone asks to being a little bit more forward. But we always talk about hearing the Holy Spirit, hearing the ping of the Holy Spirit, you know, Be sensitive to the right time. You're maybe in a conversation. uh, You're at school with a bunch of parents or something like that. And and somebody mentions they just moved into town. You know, say, hey, if there's anything I can help you with, let me know. And if you're looking for a church, boy, do we have a great one. Just helping people make natural fluid connects. I think a lot of times when people think of evangelism, they think somebody's got a bullhorn and they're shooting at an oh blank range at somebody huh. blowing them out we're just looking for natural spirit-led ways to equip people to share their faith
0: this is awesome and and one of the things that you're emphasizing then is like and some people will resist this getting people in the doors like oh well let's just like live it out where we are let's uh do these various things like let's let's not try to emphasize just like church attendance too much but you in, interesting in the very last chapter i found it re- really interesting give uh, p- pastors or churches, some guidelines, some like helpful tools to think about how they're prepared for it. And this is one of the things, like you say, uh, are people ready to receive people who are coming to church? And then secondly, yeah. yeah, like what what does that mean? Like how do how do we often miss the point there?
1: Well, I think sometimes, uh, you know, first of all, if we're not excited about things, nobody else is going to be. I mean, if you don't love your church, if you're not excited about your church, if you don't honestly believe that your church is going to be a blessing to somebody, you're not going to invite them. If you don't honestly believe the gospel is good news, if you buy into this cultural lie of a narrative that Christians are haters and and all we want to do is ruin everybody's party and ruin everybody's time, if you buy into that narrative, you're never going to share the gospel. But we believe the gospel is good news. And if it's good news, you want to share it. Who doesn't want to share good news? And I think part of it, Andy, is just equipping people, Christians, with what I'm going to call a biblical mentality. The people in the New Testament believed the gospel was good news. They believed they had something to offer. I believe our church has something to offer. I believe that uh, Jesus has a great deal to offer. But for two-thirds of people, it's easier for them to invite someone to church than it is to share their faith. So let's just take baby steps. Let's start, invite somebody to church. I'll share Jesus with them once they get there. And then we have to look at our church. If we get a first-time guest, uh, then how's our welcoming? How's our greeting? How is our follow-up? What does our facility look like? Are they feeling loved and appreciated? Do they know where the bathroom is? Do they know where to get a cup of coffee? it just brings up a lot of things that we ask ourselves. And then what is our follow-up? What is our plan? How do we reach out to these people once they've identified themselves? Our mission is we exist to connect people to Jesus Christ. We don't exist to grow the church, but if we are effective at connecting people, we'll grow the church. So inviting people, evangelism, also gives you a chance to evaluate, test your systems, and yeah, take absolutely. a look at, are you honestly prepared to connect yeah. people with Jesus? A lot of churches aren't.
0: Right. I think uh, one of the things that's interesting is when that happens, you think about what is somebody who is coming, who you've invited, what is their experience? A lot of times that starts as soon as they, uh, I mean, probably before, what does your website look like, right? Like, what does your website look like? They're going to check you out before you get there, before they get there, probably then also. What does a parking lot look like? <laughs> like, like, what does it feel when somebody opens the door? I mean, that might be one of the hardest things for them to do, just even opening the door to walk into the church. Yes. So you, you say, say, interesting enough, that you need to get you that people should focus their resources on improving Sunday morning worship services. Some people would disagree with that. Some people say, no, we need to focus externally on. um. Right. On, on works of mercy in the community, or we need to do a, or, or missions, whatever. But you're saying focus your energy towards Sunday morning.
1: Yeah, I really believe that is the catalyst. That's the bread and butter of everything the church yeah. does. Wow. And even if deep in your heart, you believe the church exists to do great good. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm just going to counter that narrative because the way I read the Great Commission, the church exists to connect people to Jesus Christ, not to do good. That being said, we're going to do all kinds of good. It's just not the primary focus of the church. Our church is focused on having people have an experience, life-changing, eternity-changing experience with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we want to invite them into community of the church. And so for me, we make no apologies in inviting people to church. And the other, I think, Andy, of the the really bad theories that I think have come down the turnpike in the last 10 years was this idea that evangelism is inviting the community to do good with us. Because churches do that all the time. It's not resulted in anyone coming to Jesus. It's not resulted in churches growing. It's not resulted in strengthening the kingdom. It's just expanding our humanitarian work. Now, if you want to do that and add evangelism and invite people to church while they're helping, invite people to Jesus while they're helping, share your faith while they're helping, that could be a very effective one-two punch. But humanitarian work in itself uh, is not what we're called to do.
0: Right. It's interesting. And I I come from an organization that ended up emphasizing the humanitarian side so much that you could say, okay, we're not going, and and there's not one Salvation Army Church that's larger than 300 people out of 1,200 in the United States. Now, some people will say that as a notch of pride, like we're not a church. We're not called to be well, but at the same time, they have congregations that take tithes, have pastors, marry, bury all that. So their evangelism isn't happening there. What happens is, well, we're going to be the church in our shelters. But here's a challenge. Now, this is me being a little critical. It's you could be critical of Methodist. I can be critical of the salvationist. There you salvationist. So this is like the uh, the challenge is that the proclamation of the gospel it doesn't always happen like the, right. the the description of Jesus's activity on our behalf and our opportunity to receive that by the power of the Holy Spirit and become a new people who are experiencing his best for our life all of that you know it gets focused a lot of times and I'll say most of the time on those works of Mercy those works of service which are wonderful but instead instead of saying like well, in the context of our congregations, this is where people come to a relationship with Jesus. And this is where they're discipled. It doesn't just stop with the evangelism there. Of course, it's like this continual journey that comes. So I see that, like, I just want to affirm that as a group that um, maybe gave up some of the evangelistic mandate for the good of serving the world.
1: Andy, I've done a gazillion consultations and church growth stuff. And here's how the conversations always go. I'll say to somebody, tell me what you're excited about concerning your church. And they'll always tell me about all the good they're doing. Wow. And and they're always doing all kinds of good. And then I'll say, how's your church doing? And their countenance falls and they go, we're dying. Wow. A lot of churches are just doing good to death. Wow. They're doing good to death. And unless we figure out how to put the Jesus piece back in, I'm not saying do less good. I'm just saying we need to include straight up evangelism And we need to embrace that evangelistic message again. Otherwise, all of our churches are in a death march.
0: Wow. Okay. This, I think that's a good transition. I was planning to talk about this in reverse order, but I love how the Spirit led us to talk about evangelism at this point, because that's probably my guess at the heart of, well, the nature of why your church Maybe uh, I'm, is left the United Methodist Church, but let me just let's talk about the the growth of your church. So, if with these principles, with this emphasis, like your church has grown, am I correct?
1: Yeah. When when I was when I first came here, the church ran about two hundred a week in okay. one service. Uh, before the pandemic hit, we were running about twenty two hundred a week in uh, five worship services with three campuses. So we, whatever God did here, God took what he had and we increased tenfold.
0: Okay. Praise the Lord. So th- that's a part of, now, let me, let me, before we even get to the foundry network, which I want to talk about, um, tell me about how that interacts with a denomination, being a large church, a growing church in a denomination. This seems like that's not always the trend is for denominational churches to to grow to, to such numbers. So tell me about that and your interaction with the United Methodist Church.
1: Well, there, certainly within the United Methodist Church, when we were still in the denomination, there certainly were some growing churches. Yeah. I mean, there certainly were. And, and one thing I noticed that uh, seemed to be very much the vast majority, the growing churches were theologically Uh, traditional and orthodox, the growing churches emphasized evangelism and discipleship, and the growing churches had long-term, steady senior leadership. Those were simply things that for 95% of those churches, uh, that was the characteristic. That, however, was not the model of the denomination in many, many ways. And so as churches get to be a certain size, how much do they need a denomination? Certainly they don't need senior leadership turning over all of the time. And so some of those aspects certainly play in to uh, denominational uh, implosion. We often look at the presenting issues, we can look at theological issues, but there's also just... Once you get to be a mega church size, which is just a sociological term, not a theological term, but once right. you get to be a very, very big church, you're sort of a denomination or at least a district unto um, yourself.
0: Interesting. Yeah. To be a district. Yeah. Th- th- that's, of course, the, the critique of mega churches is that they end up being like kind of like their own denomination. So it's interesting to me that you just go ahead and claim that. Um, And I'm glad, like, I don't don't resist that at all either. Okay. So it is also though is evangelism though, that's often missing too in these pieces. So you, you're, it's interesting to me that people who are often in uh, systems that have itinerant uh, system or a command structure, people are moved around, don't stay for 26 years. So how did you stay? How did you stay even for the first fifteen? you know, like without getting moved? How does that work?
1: Well, I think in the early years, it's a little tougher, but uh it, it God just blessed our church. Our church grew for twenty one consecutive years, okay I mean, every single year. and we we had bishops uh, in this conference and and good superintendents in this conference who, in my case, saw the value of a pastor who was well, well well-suited for a particular area and a particular congregation. And I think they sort of eventually went to the if it ain't broke, don't fix it rule. And we certainly were a bit of an anomaly, but there were other long-term pastors here and there. Uh, And almost all of our churches that have grown from plant to mega or from very small to incredibly large one of the things they almost always have in common is a senior leader who's been there for two or three decades.
0: Right. It seems like this makes sense. Like, let's take note of this, folks, like what's happening. Um, You think so. Okay. So you guys grew in an amazing way. You were able to have consistent leadership over time, which is part of why that the Christ Church was able to grow. Um, But I'm not sure when it happened, but you all have already disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church, correct? Can you tell us about that process?
1: Yeah, we uh, we disaffiliated in twenty twenty one. Kind of started the process before the pandemic, and it was just a, a matter. I don't think it's any secret the the American mainline has essentially imploded. Yeah, uh, the United Methodist Church was sort of the last of the mainline churches to to walk through that difficult difficult cycle, and and I think Andy, it's something anybody could see coming. Yeah, and to be frank with you, I hoped it would come after I retired. How's that? I mean, I did. I, I knew it was all going to blow to crap at some point. I hoped it yeah. would be after I retired. And when we saw how things were going down, when we lived through, we had General Conference uh, that dealt only with human sexuality. The Worldwide Methodist Meeting was in St. Louis, so 15 minutes from us. Okay. And it got so divisive in the press so divisive there, we lost a lot of people from our congregation. So all of a sudden the dysfunctions of the denomination started affecting us locally. Okay. At that point, uh, we decided we were gonna have to do something about it to uh, be able to establish our own narrative and to keep going and growing what God had been doing. So we decided our best path was to disaffiliate.
0: So it's interesting, like what happened, uh, like it affected you locally. Were, were there people who were saying, look, Christ's church is great, but I can't support the denomination? Or was it uh, they just didn't like the conflict? What was it What was it that led to those challenges locally? What were those local challenges?
1: Well, I think we built this church in, in a lot of ways by focusing on a mission. We exist to connect people to Jesus. And in the 90s and early 2000s, it was sort of like, and we're going to disagree on all kinds of things. Yeah. After 2016, And as it went into 17, 18, the cultural wars in 19, all of a sudden, it got very, very difficult to go to church with people who had diametrical opposite political views than you. And for the first time in my life, people began to view theology through a political lens. Yeah. And all of a sudden, people could not imagine attending a church if they suspected that the senior pastor disagreed with them on immigration policy. Or if yeah. they suspected that the pastor had a traditional stance toward marriage and family. And before long, fueled by social media, it just got very difficult for churches to be pretty heterogeneous, as we had been for a long time. And so a lot of those divides began to happen. At first, I thought what was happening in Methodist was a, in Methodism was a tempest in a teapot. But I began to see we were just a teapot in a much larger tempest.
0: Interesting.
1: What was happening to us was just a microcosm of what was happening in America. And we felt the need to, to establish our own narrative because the narrative of the denomination was increasingly not who we were or where we were. Yeah. So I imagine
0: that being in a large church and even the fact that I know who you are, though I don't know much about it, I just... Based on social media and a few videos here or there. Well,
1: we've Just been best friends for like twenty minutes now. Oh, now okay. we're twenty I mean, five minutes. Yeah, like, no. like twenty <laughs> minutes. I mean, think of the quality time we've spent together, Andy.
0: I know so much more than so many other people. I am shocking, so really. Yeah, it shocking. So, like, imagine that that your being at a large church gave you some influence within the United Methodist Church. So, did did you did you sense like a calling for a period to try to work at renewing the church?
1: Oh, I spent the the first decades of of my ministry trying to do that. I, I served as a general conference delegate three times, jurisdictional conference delegate four times. I was elected by my peers. I was uh, to served two four year stints on the episcopacy committee for the jurisdiction, which decides where bishop goes. I did everything I could to try to have a voice but it became clear after a while that where I was and where I am is I'm a traditional Bible-believing Wesleyan Christian, but I'm yeah. not in a bad mood about it. <laughs> um, and so where I was was decreasingly reflecting where the denomination seemed to be heading as a whole. Yeah. And yeah. it it was, as I played it forward to a logical extreme, uh, it felt like it was time to lead in another direction.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've talked about some of this with some of our past guests. Um, I had somebody from Northern Illinois or Chicago, um, you know, Methodist Church on who's staying in in the denomination. But the the exact day that we had our conversation, that was where there was a a drag queen past pastoral candidate uh, from Southern Illinois. So I'm guessing that's in your conference. So just to highlight for my audience those type of things are happening where shane is serving and so if you're certain and i don't know if you, how much you know about wesley biblical seminary but we're a, a seminary that's in the evangelical wesleyan tradition serving a, a denominations across that tradition we believe in the authority of like everything you just said the authority of scripture um the reality and promise of entire sanctification and also the opportunity that we have to embrace like the good news of the gospel to share that wide and, and pro- uh, as wide as we can so that's a part of who we are as an organization like we i did and i think most of my audience is there with you so it's interesting then like you just disaffiliate and uh some people probably can know about that process maybe ahead of the game a little bit there have been some other churches that had done that before you but you're in this process now so then you have to figure out what you want to do what what were your options when you disaffiliated of what you would do like go to another denomination tell tell me about those
1: well, clearly, it's one thing to decide you're going to leave Egypt, and it's something else entirely to figure out which direction the promised land might be. Yeah. Uh, I formed a uh, uh, some of our best and brightest folks at Christ Church. I, I formed a uh, uh, just a, a pastoral group early in this process. I said, I don't want to be a part of this. I just want you to be a task force. I want you to look at the denomination, you know, our church, I want you to study this stuff. And I want you to come back with recommendations. Okay, so they came back to me. And the reality was, I mean, this is going to be overstated a little bit. But the reality was, they said, we can't stay in this denomination. Uh, We would love for you to be our pastor, but we're not going to stay. And so I had already reached, my wife and I, Melissa, we had already reached a conclusion after 2019 that we couldn't stay. Okay. So we separately reached a decision. And that's one thing I I really believe is true. I I, I don't think pastors and churches are one and the same. I I think that pastors have one decision to make and I think churches have a decision to make. And then they have to ask, uh, is our path together or, or not? But we went through a lengthy period of discernment, which was extended because of COVID. Yeah. But uh, the recommendation didn't come to me. In fact, I think in some ways, some of the folks on the inside here would probably say I was one of I was among the last to come wow. around. Interesting. Because I've just been a United Methodist my, my whole life. They've treated me very, very well. I have yeah. dear friends. Uh, I care about the denomination. But uh, in our case, our path lied in a different direction. So then once people hear you getting out, you get calls from various and sundry denominations. You know, want to join the Salvation Army?
0: Answer. Yeah, exactly.
1: We got a lot of those. So we took a look at the options that were available out there and frankly decided that none of them fit us terribly well, but we didn't want to be a standalone independent churches. We see that as having too many Achilles heels to it. Okay, So we didn't want to be a standalone, independent church. So I got on the phone, began to talk to other pastors who were out or getting out, who were in similar sized churches, and we all got together uh, in the Georgia mountains, and five of us got together and said, hey, what is it we need? We're going to leave. That's already decided. But what is it we need for our size of church where we stand theologically? What do we need in terms of a tribe? and accountability? What is it we really, really need to further our missions? And what can we do together? And so the Foundry Network grew out of that.
0: Okay. So that that is really interesting. Did the, co- the committee from your congregation come to you and say, there are no options? Or did, what was that? Was that there where they were? Or was that after the fact that they had decided to leave?
1: No, I think they pretty much decided to leave Egypt and left it to me to find the promised land.
0: Gotcha. Okay, interesting. Okay, with uh, obviously there's several denominations, so you're not picking on any one of them here. Obviously, the Global Methodist Church just started in 2022, Correct. so they weren't around then. Um, what was it about the denominations that just didn't wasn't a, uh, your promised land?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing I, I want to stay very clearly: I was a part of WCA. I was on their global council from almost their inception. Okay. Uh, served on it for years, was a keynote speaker at many of the events. And I do want to say this, as WCA has become, essentially become the Global Methodist Church, Andy, some of the finest Christian people I've ever met are part of the Global Methodist Church. And I can't tell you how much respect I have for them. I know their hearts. And I believe for the vast majority of churches that are leaving the United Methodist Church, particularly small churches, who might have trouble attracting a pastor, or pastors who might have trouble finding a congregation on the open market. Yeah. Uh, I believe that Global Methodist is the right move for the vast majority of those churches. Okay. Others have found other communities to be a part of, and and I, I applaud all of them. But for us, for a church of our size, moving from one denomination. That we decreasingly agreed with to another denomination that we agreed with didn't make a ton of sense for us because we didn't feel called to be part of a denomination. We wanted to be part of a movement.
0: Okay, interesting. So that's what you feel like Foundry is, the Foundry Network is a movement. Uh, tell tell me about what. I mean, you described it a little bit, the five people got together in the Georgia Mountains and but what is it that they have a denomination is a kind of a a, a category that's unique it hasn't always existed Correct. i mean some people you say a denomination it means a difference in coins you know like what, is, what does it mean like a denomination nevertheless like there is something that a denomination supplies Absolutely. to a local church a connectionalism accountability um but y- like you're ch- your church and this group of pastors are choosing to move away from that. So I'm, I'm curious w- of, of the reasons for that.
1: Well, one is if you look at historically, if you look at why denominations formed, they formed so that like-minded Christians could put aside the things that other Christians argue about and fuss yeah. about and focus on evangelism. Uh, that was it. And in a sense, modern denominationalism is a train wreck. because all they do is fight and fuss and what we should do is say we are the people who agree on Mm -hmm. these things so now let's go tell people about jesus and let's make disciples let's let's go to judea and samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth a a denomination should be a springboard i hope global methodist is, is is able to do that however for some churches and very very large churches uh Being a part of a denomination costs hundreds of thousands of dollars a year out of our budgets. They're called apportionments in Methodism. And you have to ask yourself as a congregation, where, as a steward of our resources, where can those dollars be best used? And in our case, uh, our leadership said locally. Mm -hmm. We can best use those hundreds of thousands of dollars that would normally go to apportionments, we can best use those for local things. And so that was a part of it, but we still felt we needed a tribe. We still felt we needed accountability. We still felt that we needed a connection among churches and pastors. We thought we could get those things in a network and not have to pay a cent for them.
0: i sure it's a network. There's no, there's no fees or anything involved with it, like in that way. But there is like, is there a, you've said you're a, uh, Wesleyan, Bible believing, even I forget all the terms you use. Okay, but nevertheless, like I'm with you. Whatever all those terms are, um is are those principles uh theological like foundations that unite you? Like are that, that you're in a, a kind of like, for lack of a better word, evangelical a uh, uh, group?
1: Yeah, Andy, just let me do an old dude thing and put some glasses on. Oh,
0: there you go. But
1: to to be a part of the founder, we're a we're a network of large churches, so we make no apologies for that. We're a There's network a large of large church. Uh, we're saying a reach of at least 750.
0: Like, so 750 on a Sunday morning. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. Or however people, you know, boy, statistics have never met less, have they? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're just saying, if you feel like you're a large church and you reach about 750 people a week, uh, that's kind of our minimum. Okay. But yeah, we, To join the network, to apply for the network, we have some things. For example, we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. We strive for ministry that's full of grace and truth. Our priority is the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And and we've just got things that we believe. So if you don't believe these, that's fine. But you're not going to be part of our network. That's what denominations used to be.
0: Yeah, sure. If you don't
1: believe these things, that's fine. But you're not going to be part of our denomination. So we want churches who are of a critical mass that we understand that do ministry in an ecclesiastical economy of similar churches that because large churches have different issues than smaller churches and yeah. we can help each other through those but we also are going to make some very clear stands about where we are if a church wants to be in they need to be in agreement with that and if they say they're in agreement and they end up not being in agreement we'll just toss them out okay
0: and so there's obviously like a board like uh various pastors will vote to have uh other churches join like the
1: We've got the the original uh, folks that were in it right now. We're kind of keeping the gate. We'll see, you know, this plane is somewhat being constructed as we go. <laughs> but the reality is there are no apportionments. We own no property. We do not ordain. Uh, individual right. churches are free to ordain. So we're not in any way, shape, or form a denomination, and we don't wish to be. So that is one of the things that we're just putting out there. If you are looking for a denomination, we're not it. You know, to quote Dylan, it ain't me, babe. So that's not us. But if you're looking for a network, if you're a standalone, large church, uh, we might be something that uh, would be a blessing to you. And if we are, that's great. And if not, we're not looking to get big.
0: Interesting. Oh, yeah.
1: If the five of us were all that we had, that'd be fine. I've got i mean any you're not trying to
0: grow is. a movement you're a movement in yourself like these exactly. five churches are already a movement okay let me ask you this i'm going to push you a little bit like you, you had a statement saying ministry full of grace in truth do you explicitly talk about marriage in those in the statements too like uh, number nine we okay. affirm
1: that marriage and sexual intimacy are good gifts from god in keeping with the teachings of scripture historically and throughout the church universal We believe that marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in a single exclusive union. We believe that God intends faithfulness in marriage and celibacy in singleness. That seems clear. That seems pretty clear to me. That's good. no apologies for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. So it's interesting, too. You know, you talk about not ordaining so that. Uh, and this is kind of like a, maybe a lot of people's first look or opportunity to even know how large churches, mega churches, work. And I like how you just define the fact that it's a sociological term. I'm sure you would be happy if the word megachurch didn't exist anymore. <laughs> that term? It's so frustrating, probably.
1: It's, it's become, you know, it's like evangelical. It's just the way the enemy works. You take a word, everybody knows, no one's sure what it means. Right. And you fill it full of negative connotations and you politicize it. Right. I, I'm not giving away evangelical, and I'm not giving away megachurch. Megachurch just means you reach two thousand people a week. <laughs> That's right, sociological term. Nothing to get excited about. So, in 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 megachurches, then or the ordination normally
0: happens in a congregational way so it's a congregational system and is that what the foundry will do is that you'll have elders of some kind maybe you don't call them that who come together and they affirm somebody's calling to ministry as somebody in theological education i'm just curious how this works like do you do you expect a seminary degree maybe maybe even your local church maybe foundry doesn't define what that is but i'm, I'm curious about that
1: no foundry is not going to define what that is that'll be up to individual churches okay but in our case we have very very stringent guidelines you can be licensed or you can go on an ordination track we we fully expect a college degree we fully expect a seminary degree we fully expect that there will be psychologicals and all of those kind of things so our vision is not to relax the stringent standards to enter ordination our our focus is to just allow people going to ministry called to ministry to be able to use their gifts as God leads them and not have somebody tell them what church they have to go to and yeah. all of those kind of things. So yeah, we have clear guidelines that are nearly identical to the guidelines we had when we were United Methodist.
0: Interesting. So so you'll what what seminaries are you using? And let me just say If you want to talk about Wesley Biblical Seminary, we'd be glad to be in that conversation.
1: We would be happy to hear more about Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, You know, we've got people right now, I've got two of my staff. Uh, One person just finished a doctorate at Asbury. Uh, One person just finished an MDiv at Asbury. I've got a lot of friends who I respect very much, uh, like David Watson, who's at UTS. But there are a lot of really good seminaries around. And I've yeah. got to the point, uh, Andy, where I'm not even going to recommend somebody goes to a bad seminary. So yeah. I've had several people over the years come up to me and say, would you give me a recommendation to go to X seminary? No.
0: Wow.
1: Why? You won't I think a it's reference a terrible later. seminary. I think you're going to wow. come out of there de So no, I will not give you a recommendation to go to that seminary. So we would love to hear, you know, send me some stuff. We can yeah, talk yeah. about it later now that we're new best friends. Absolutely. We're always looking for great seminaries in our tradition to present the gospel of, of Jesus Christ as we understand it.
0: I think some people might be listening. They might hear it out like and since we've just been 35, 40 minute best friends. Like I can't help yeah, right, but like right. ourselves out there.
1: barbecuing that kind of thing. High school. Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. But uh, maybe the fear is not fear. That's not the right word. Like Suspicions. Oh, well, okay. Now they're kind of, they're congregational. They're not denominational. It just sounds like they're just becoming, um, like more like a Baptist church or like use any seminary or not, not even have people go through any form of higher education. Like certainly, um, the higher education has been a problem within the church at times. So unless it's not done well, it can be very problematic. So I I understand some of the concerns there, but we one of the it's exciting moment for us, you know, I'll give you a little bit of WBS's story. We for some reason in 1980s weren't allowed to be a part of the the university senate did not approve us. So we have right. not trained United Method pastors and said people come for us two years, then go to an approved seminary. We've been able to have doctorate ministry students for years, but unfortunately we haven't served the United Method Church. Uh, Brian Collier, you know, your your friend who's um the order of the network. Here he is in Mississippi, you know, couldn't have come to WBS like right. and, and been ordained. But now, in, in the meantime, we've served every other kind of evangelical Wesleyan holiness denomination. We're growing. We have more than 300 students right now. We're incredibly diverse. We're awesome. fiercely orthodox and biblically centered. And at the same time, now there's this moment. Now there's this kind of clear opening where you don't have the denominational restrictions and there's the emerging global Methodist church growing small denominations. So this is an exciting moment for us. At Wesley Bible, and I think your movement, and I'm not saying it's yours, Shane. The Foundry Network also represents something exciting. And That's why I wanted to have a, have you on the podcast. Is because uh, and it doesn't. Even, I don't. I don't even love referring to it as Wesley and Christianity. Like it's Christianity that comes from this evangelical tradition of John Wesley. That version of Christianity has a lot to say to the world. And I love the emphasis that you have on evangelism and church growth. And I think this is an exciting day. I mean, tell me about like how you feel about this movement that stems from Wesley at, at, in 2023.
1: Well, one of the things that just really strikes me is that, you know, John Wesley launched a movement. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what happens with movement you know, I'm an historian by trade as well as a theolo- theologian. I've got two master's degrees, but my, my specialty before I went into ministry was revivalism, 18th century revivalism. The sure, great sure. revival that started in Kentucky and Tennessee was just a movement. It, it came after the Great Awakening. It was that second Great Awakening, and it was just a movement of God that happened in camp meetings, and, and this movement begins to swell. Well, what the Methodists were brilliant at is they they built Plumbing. For the movement. And they started hospitals and they started schools and they started colleges and they they planted churches. They, they built plumbing. Well, what's happened over the years is the water's dried up and now you're spending all your time maintaining the pipes. Yeah, and, and that is kind of where it's at. For me, the Foundry Network gives us an opportunity to do some new things with vital growing churches who are passionate about evangelism and discipleship So you've got these like-minded Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who believe our future is bright, and just want to reach people for Jesus. And so if the Foundry Network can help us all do that, it'll be a blessing. And if it doesn't, good riddance to it. Who cares? All we (laughs) want to do is uh, lean into what the Holy Spirit's doing and be the church in our times and in the decades to come. That's our vision.
0: Amen. I love it. I, I think it's an exciting moment, an exciting moment for various groups to be able to shed some of the challenges that come from institutionalism. Uh, it's just been, it, it's so easy, easily perpetuates itself. And, and then it gets off center. And I think that that's what's happened. Unfortunately, not uh, like you said, denominations across the board, like Methodism has held on for a long time. And I know people are weeping The fact that this has come and a lot of times it's causing people to realize or even think about what does it mean to be uh, a part of a Methodist denomination like what what, why why is it it mean I'm not Baptist or I'm somewhere liturgically between Roman Catholicism and like a more free church. Um, No, like it should be theological, it should be missional. And that's what I think. And if that's what if that's what it is and not a kind of cultural understanding of like what how you fit into your community. I think this makes a really big difference. So that's why I'm excited for this one, because it's that theology of revival, I think, that we're going to need for who God's calls to be in this next generation.
1: And Andy, my guess is in your circle, as well as mine, a part of this conflict, if if you will, has provided the grist for some really wonderful uh, Wesleyan theology. You know, the notes aren't all yellow now. Uh, Dr. Billy Abraham, I was on a lot of tickets with with him before he, his untimely passing. Uh, you know, there are so many people out there today doing rich Wesleyan theology, uh, putting books out, getting that conversation going. And, and you and I both know the Reformed movement at times takes more out of Wesley than the Wesleyans do.
0: Sure, sure.
1: And so. I think we have a lot to offer. I think even though this conflict has been inevitable in my mind and and not ideal under any circumstances, there's still been some good things come of it. And my hope and prayer, and and if we're all really honest, the Protestant church, since its inception, its primary evangelistic strategy has been schism. I mean, I don't know that you can argue that historically. We've added a few with uh, campaigns. But for the most part, things split, they grow when they do, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and then it bogs down again. I feel like we're gonna be in one of those electric moments for the next decade or two where we could see some great kingdom good and maybe even say to ourselves for such a time as
0: this. Amen. Oh, what a good, what a good word. Um, I'm claiming that one myself. And I, I feel like that's what we're that's where we are. It's interesting our growth at wbs um we've had four semesters straight of of record attendance uh, enrollment and credits purchased. and so like that that fits in that with with that idea is as, as people are seeking theological training in the midst of this um i think like it's the orthodox schools that are ready for that revival that'll be ready to step up to do it okay i could go on for a long time but i i asked only for so much time for you but i do need Enjoy to ask it. my question uh, our my podcast is called More to the Story, and that has a theological meaning too behind it. That there's more than just getting saved. There's the holy life, but nevertheless, probably more to the story of Shane Bishop. What do you? Know, is there something you don't get to talk about very much, Shane?
1: Well, one of the things that uh, I've been doing in recent years is, is writing. Okay. And I guess as you get older, you know, I always joke with people here in Southern Illinois. You know, when you're when you're young. You, you, you're a young buck, you want to survive in the woods, then you want to be the biggest buck in the woods, then you want to be the smartest buck in the woods. And now I'm at the point I'm teaching young bucks how to stay alive in the woods. <laughs> so I kind of in this mentor kind of stage, but God put a couple of things on my heart that I'm excited about. Uh, I've, I've got a storybook app that's been out since 2017. It's called Love God, Love People, Don't Do Dumb Crap. And uh, it's uh. a collection of stories, it's done unbelievably well. I've also got two trail guides. They are verse-by-verse verse walks through entire books of the Bible. And they're just okay. written for regular people in the context of just taking somebody on a trail. So we've got a trail guide on James and we have a trail guide on the Gospel of John. Next year, we'll be producing a trail guide on 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude. And boy, is that one going to be a ride. Oh, and yeah, then right yeah. now, I've got a brand new book coming out next week. It'll come out on... Uh, February 14th, and it is called That's Good News. And it's overcoming your fear and and sharing your faith. And so the writing side has taken a lot of time for me. And uh, that's kind of what I've been doing. In addition to the fact we kind of checked out a suburbia, bought a cabin in the middle of the woods. And I spend a lot of time uh, out there these days.
0: Oh man, I love it! And we talked a little bit about that book at the beginning. Where can people find these things, Shane? Like
1: all the normal places. Uh, okay. Invite Resources is my publisher. Uh, Amazon, uh, Kindle, Barnes and Noble. I mean, all the all the normal places. They are there. But again, my my niche is is presenting the gospel to regular people. It's mm-hmm. not taking simple things and making them complicated to show everybody how smart I think I am. It's about taking complicated things and communicating them to regular people. And what i want to do with evangelism is say, you don't need a seminary degree yes. to do evangelism. You don't Amen. need to be a raging extrovert. You just need to be a Christian who can hear the Holy Spirit, that honestly cares that people comes to Je- come to Jesus and believes the gospel is good news. That's kind of my approach. I just want to help regular people get closer to Jesus.
0: Amen. I love it connecting people to Jesus. Now, one of the I'll just highlight when you m- mentioned the Jude resource you have coming out. I think in this next move of the spirit, the book of Jude is going to be like the battle plan, so to speak. It is um, I have a six week study course that people can get at my website, Andy Miller the third, andymiller on Jude. And I found something interesting. The commentator said, I actually is is Barclay, you know, those little, little comments. He Barkley. says they're interesting. Yeah. Oh, for sure. What a great writer. And yeah. uh, he said something interesting. He said, I don't know how he got to this statement, so I can't v- verify, but he said, whenever periods of revival come, the book of Jude is quickly dis- discovered. That's um, awesome. It deals with sin and it deals with uh, sexual sin in a clear way, but off- also offers the gospel with hope and gentleness and connected to the Apostolic tradition, the faith once for all the the saints. So I love hearing that you're doing that. I, I, I find it interesting. So many people are starting to emphasize the book of Jude. What a blessing. And Second Peter, of course, they have similar material.
1: Well, you look at some of the material like James, like uh like Jude. I mean, some of this stuff just barely gets in the New Testament. Right. And I'm convinced that part of the reason I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the canon, but I believe that there were pieces that the church fathers at the time didn't feel were unbelievably appropriate then. That God made sure got in the canon because we need them now. Amen. Books like Jude and James fall into that category. Sure. I feel like that that the time for Jude is still coming. And I do believe that uh, it's got some powerful things to say to a counter-cultural church, which is what we are now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you think about some of those other things that got included in the canon. Um, the 19th century needed Philemon. Yeah. You know, it's so 18th and 19th century. So who knows what God has in store for us, but we're thankful for his revealed word, which is so clear. Absolutely. Shane, thank you so much for your time. It's such a blessing to meet you. My my best friend now of 50 minutes. All yeah, uh, right. It's like a whole forward. hour.
1: Yeah. I spent more time with you than I have aggregately with some of my relatives over the last 30 years.
0: Well, that's a a similar comparisons made for me. (laughs) Well, thanks for your time, Shane. God bless you. We'll look forward to meeting you face-to-face
1: sometime. Blessings. Looking forward to hearing more about your seminary and blessings upon your good work. Let's just pray that God uses the likes of us to launch a movement of the Holy Spirit in our time.
0: Why don't you just say say that prayer? I live for that. Close us out with that prayer.
1: Almighty God, we thank you so much for all you've done. For what you're doing, but we're really excited about what you have yet to do. Yes. So we pray right now that you would use us to launch a Holy Spirit movement in our time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you, dear God, for who you are. Thank you that you've given us everything we need to do anything you'd ever ask us to do. And we can't wait to see what wonderful things lie ahead in this age as we proclaim the name of Jesus. And we pray it in his strong name. Amen.
0: Amen.